So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, I am very excited to be joined by Camila Vergara, who is a postdoctoral research scholar and lecturer at the Eric Holder Initiative for Civil and Political Rights at Columbia Law School and a former journalist in Chile. She is co-editor of Machiavelli on Liberty and Conflict. Welcome to the show, Camila. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to uh, discuss all these interesting things that are happening, uh, not only in Chile, but also around the world. In the last year, Chileans have, have voted to, last October, in fact, they voted to draft a new constitution. And then this past May, there was a, another election to figure out who would sit in the Constitutional Convention. Before we get to what happened in, in May, maybe we could start by talking about the last 30 or 40 years in Chile. This comes in the context of what you what you call a neoliberal pressure cooker. So well, what's happened since the 70s, I guess, in Chile? And why is there this neoliberal pressure cooker in, in Chile? Uh, thank you for that question of context. Look, Chile has been a laboratory uh, for many things. Uh, one of them was uh, neoliberalism. So what we call this kind of a minimal state in which uh, there's a lot of freedom for enterprise and a lot of uh, precarity going on in terms of uh, hollowing all out of uh, the middle classes and um, uh, the increases of you know debt uh, throughout you know the population. These are uh, mechanisms. Uh, and, and results of uh, specific policies that were tested for the first time in Chile. So we need to remember that uh, in 1970, actually Chile was another um, experiment of democratic socialism with uh, Salvador Allende, who was the first Marxist elected uh, through the ballot. And in, in the middle of the Cold War, this was very, very dangerous in a way for uh, how, you know, the balance of power. Basically, uh, the U.S. through the CIA, uh, they collaborated with the extreme right uh, wing parties and they had to destabilize first uh, the government and then to take over with a military coup uh, with the famous General Pinochet. There was a, a famous picture of him uh, posing with his sunglasses on, you know, with his arms crossed. If you Google it, you can find it. It's a very terrifying uh, photograph. But basically, he became uh, very quickly uh, the leader uh, of Chile from 73 to uh, 1990 when he uh, gave up power. And, through, and during those years, he allied himself with, and, and he allied himself before, coming into power with uh, a group of economists that we call the Chicago Boys, because during the 50s and 60s, it was an exchange uh, program in which um, part of the um, students of economy in Chile would go to Chicago and, and learn basically neoliberal economics uh, of you know, Hayek and Milton Friedman, and then basically came back to Chile and wrote a guide to uh, implement all these uh, new society-based on the individual and basically uh, your uh, ability to acquire things. So uh, what happened then was that they created kind of the society in which basically you needed to buy everything from health insurance to education to pension. Everything is based on, on money and your own accumulation as an individual. So therefore, if you have a badly paying job, you really don't have access to much, only to uh, the, little, the little things that you can afford. So when we came back to democracy in 19. 
1990, people thought that uh, with, you know, democracy, this kind of economic setup will change. And people would, that you know, the trickle down system in which the rich invest and then basically all the profits of society trickle down to the poor was proven, you know, not correct in the sense that never happened. It was more a trickle up situation going on, basically exploitation from uh, the working classes and accumulation at the top. And that continued and that never changed. And basically the uh, parties from the right and the center and the left at the time uh, agreed that they would not change the constitution, which is the framework that allows uh, this accumulation to happen in the first place, the rules of the game, basically. They decided not to touch them in a essential manner. And, and, and the, the inequality and precarity of the population just started, was allowed to basically endure and reproduce uh, new forms of domination that came to uh, October 2019, which we are calling, you know, the popular uprising and a rebellion, basically, of, you know, the majority of the population who have been in a pre precarious condition, have been oppressed for 30 years in democracy. So first, you know, during the dictatorship and then during democracy, nothing really changed for them, for them and not much at least. And therefore, they rose up and they there was a popular uprisings in many parts of Chile that basically ended in a, in a constituent process, what you have described before, which is the formal part of the process, basically a plebiscite uh, that was forced basically onto the, the executive by all this mobilization. And then the election of the people that actually will write the constitution. That is the formal process. But from October 2019, uh, the, during the uprising, a lot of uh, local councils and assemblies started emerging and basically making decisions and trying to become, uh, become actors in this process. And this is ongoing. Wow, that's very exciting that that's happening. I, I want to come back to this, this question of, of reforming or rewriting the Constitution in just a sec. But I want to first go back to I had a couple of questions about the, the history. Number one, you mentioned that Allende was a Marxist, but also that there was a social democratic experiment. And I think for maybe a lot of listeners um, and for me, I'm confused. How can you both have a Marxist president and have a social democratic experiment? Aren't they different things? Yes, they're very different things and uh, they are not really compatible in many ways. And we're not talking about democracy as kind of like the concept or ideal of democracy, but basically that um, changing uh, the means of accumulation and, and what, what um, David Harvey has labeled this process of, of accumulation by dispossession, that basically is what happens in the scenarios in which the rich appropriate way more of, the, of their share, basically, that is... That is um, allotted to them by fairness and deprive others. This setup, uh, you cannot just change through the rules of the game, through the rules of the game of liberal democracy, of a democracy that is understood as separation of powers, uh, basically that the Congress checks the president and, and, the, and the courts check the Congress and the president. So therefore, there's very little that you can do in terms of like structural change without the uh, approval of the other branches, right? So social change that is needed, structural, in the sense that uh, you need to redistribute property. This is very problematic to do through the rules of the game that exist without a proper organization of popular power in the sense that the ballot box doesn't give you enough authority 
to stand up to the constituted powers, to the powers that are in Congress and the executives, to politicians that are paid, you know, by companies. And there's like this uh, networks of corruption that are allowing the rules of the game to be rewritten or interpret uh, only to favor the few and to oppress the many. What Allende, he, his uh, ideology was socialist, okay? Of course, uh, if you're going to realize socialism through the rules of the game that exist, then you cannot really realize uh, the project itself. You need to cut things out. You need to do it very slowly. You need to do, there's timings and, and other things that you need to take into, into consideration. And his, and his tenure only lasted for three and a half years before the coup. And therefore, the, the rules of the game didn't allow the establishment, the institutions in a way, were not playing along. And when he did everything by the book and basically didn't satisfy anyone at the end, uh, this is a, a, it's a problem too, that in trying to conform to the rules, uh, you end up alienating also your base. But at the end, what we need to understand that the rules of the game, the institutions that exist, will not protect you from coups that are oligarchic, that come from the powerful few in order to maintain their privileges. And this is what Allende uh, didn't kind of was, I, I think, naive or had wishful thinking in terms of like if he respected the rules of liberal democracy and the separation of powers and all these things that basically are minimal, he would be safe and the project would be safe, but it wasn't. But thinking about his economic program then, was he trying to nationalize things? Was he trying to provide universal health care? Was he trying to do agrarian reform? And I guess what I'm wondering is, was his program similar to something you'd see in post-war Italy or France, or was it more based on the Soviet model? Very interesting question. This idea of all of the above, I would, I would say, in okay. terms of the project. And this is a long, has a longer history than what you refer to. And I, in my own work, I connected to the history of populism and not populism understood of Donald Trump. Okay, Let, let's make it clear. Uh, okay. when, we see, when the media uh, say that Donald Trump is a populist, they're actually meaning he is an ethno-nationalist, okay, or a supremacist in many ways, but not a populist of the the he doesn't, he's not the spokesperson of the poor in society or, you know, the deprived. The white majority is never deprived in a way in comparison with other uh, groups in society. So from that point of view, that is not, is not part of the populist movement. However, I would say that uh, in America, basically, there is a lot of a history of this. Um, today, we have Bernie Sanders as democratic socialist that is very close to what the uh, old populists of the U.S. were uh, sponsoring. So in the 80s, 1990s, uh, just after Reconstruction, what happened was that the, the realization of equality was not done in a way. And this involved also uh, the equality and the power of also the majority of white Americans, not only black Americans having, you know, being deprived of material conditions to survive. After some problems with droughts and debt, you know, uh, many of the farmers at the time were indebted to the financial classes. And at the moment that they had um, a problem paying back, uh, their land were being taken uh, taking away. So the early populists in America, they asked, the platform basically was allow for the debts to be abolished. This, you know, abolishing of student debt and of housing debt. This comes from the 1890s in the U.S. Mm -hmm. basically has a very long history. And mm -hmm. the idea that there are rapacious financial elites that are taking advantage of situations on the ground 
and are depriving the majority of their are their livelihoods. So they are were asking the state to step in, and they didn't want to abolish capitalism. Okay, they were not anti-capitalist in this way. They were anti-oligarchic, which is very different. And I think this is what uh, you know ties the populist with Bernie Sanders in the sense that it is the one percent which is the problem, who is the, and and the and the or these corporations that are taking advantage, but not really the system as a whole. They don't want to abolish the system. They want to tweak the system. They want to make it better in a way. And that in that way, they marry the idea of you know equality that brings of from socialism uh, to the reality of of today in a way, and and it, that that is limited by you know government. And if we think about it, if Bernie Sanders today was sponsoring a wealth tax and and was was president and he wanted to uh, go forward with his platform, uh, as we have seen today with President Biden, there has been a lot of resistance from the Democrats as well. So you would have to be very authoritarian to actually, you know, pass all the redistributive measures that he had in mind. Uh, something similar happened with Allende in, in Chile. Basically, he did agrarian reform. He nationalized copper. Copper is basically 60% of our GDP, uh, and he nationalized it. And even the dictatorship or the post-neoliberal, you know, governments didn't uh, go back on that because uh, it is an important source of revenue for, for the state. There was a campaigns for a equal education, equal access to healthcare. For example, one of the famous uh, things that he did was to uh, give every child a, uh, a liter of milk. Uh, the kids could not, you know, didn't have access to milk. So they had poor teeth, they had broken bones. Uh, so he decided that it was a universal uh, a right of every child to have milk. And interestingly, uh, Margaret Thatcher in England was the one who abolished that, that actually existed in England. You know, you need to, to cut the burdens in the state. Uh, she actually abolished that right that uh, children had in England. So it is important to see how this redistribution measures that come from, you know, a more socialist or populist background uh, are all intertwined because you cannot just have one platform, one thing. You need, when you need structural change, you need to, and, and, and to change this means of accumulation by dispossession, you really need to uh, make changes in many parts of the economy and society in order to really change the structure. When I was in college, this might say a lot about where I went to school, but my econ and poli-sci professors, I remember at least twice this happening, them saying something like, well, yes, you know, Pinochet was brutal, bad dictatorship, but look at Chile now, it's the richest country in Latin America per capita. And in 2010, Chile joined the OECD. And so these reforms worked. What would your response to that be? Well, I'm going to give one example. So um, in the 80s, when after the debt crisis in 1982, which basically was the cause of that crisis, of the debt crisis was uh, born by the poor in Chile, uh, poverty increased uh, to 40% of the population at some point, even more. At that point, at the end of the 80s, uh, and, and basically almost in the transition to democracy uh, in that year, there were around 900 uh, encampments in Chile uh, th throughout the country, basically encampments, meaning uh, people just occupying land, uh, many of them, uh, a community basically occupying land that doesn't belong to them, having no sewer system, no electricity, no law there, basically, there's no basic basic services, and they were, uh, and, and were around 900. Uh, today, 
actually just before the uprising, there were 800. So even if they diminish a little bit, we haven't even dealt with that. The state basically, we if you go to uh, Santiago, which is the capital, and you go to the financial district uh, that we call actually Sanhattan, <laughs> they kind of, this is kind of the, the, the jargon that we use, the, the label that we use to describe this place, because basically it has sky rise. And if you are like around there, you're just like, wow, I'm in the first world here. Mm-hmm. Basically a lot of money. There's only like people coming in luxurious cars and going, you know, underground and and with all these views. But basically, just uh, a a few kilometers down uh, by the river, there's a huge encampment of people living in cardboard boxes, basically. So this is something that the the, you can see that the accelerated growth that is produced uh, through neoliberal policies, which entail the privatization of public businesses, uh, the accelerated growth that created uh, this neoliberal system created a lot of growth, but that was basically accumulated in in few hands. And it was not this trickle-down economics was really never a reality, was only real in a few places. And uh, today we call it um, in Santiago, the capital, there's three neighborhoods with the, you know, you you would say the the more elite zip codes, the the people, the richest live there, basically. And those are the ones who uh, voted against initiating the constituent process. So there were 20% of the population that voted against, you know, a new constitution. They wanted to keep uh, the Pinochet constitution, basically, that mm-hmm. uh, was uh, in their favor. And 20% voted against it. And uh, the majority, like 90% of the people that voted, you know, in, in, the, in that count were basically in those three uh, zip codes. So you see that that even if, you know, the, the change that the, the wealth has been around and you can see wealth everywhere, there's also places that are completely forsaken by the state. And there has there has been no material improvement in those communities. There's 30% of the population in Chile have no uh, internet access, none, not even sporadic. So they, they live in another era in compared to other citizens who have full access and can do all the things online. And, you know, they don't have to deal with lines or we're putting their life in, at risk, for example, today in the pandemic. They just do it in a click, you know, in, in the webpage. And that is uh, only... Uh, available to some in high speed and the rest in a very precarious way. And then 30%, there just no, there's no accessibility. So yes, there has been improvement. And actually our president uh, had just given an interview just like a month before the uprising, uh, saying that basically Chile was an oasis of stability in the region and basically <laughs> that we were the best. And basically one month after, there were like uh, all, all these pictures about, you know, burning subway stations and people marching, millions of people out, and uh, a lot of, you know, repression. And this the oasis just uh, was set ablaze, basically. Uh, but we still don't know who set it ablaze. This is very interesting because uh, we still, after, imagine, 2019, uh, we still don't know who burned the subway stations, which was the reason that the president decided to take out the military in order, for the first time, after 30 years of democracy, that the military come are, are called to establish order. And this was very scary. And there were a lot of human rights violations. So I uh, imagine that we don't know uh, who were the authors of this, you know, um, uh, uh, setting a place of the oasis. Uh, what we know, yes, is that the people mobilize and they are organized and they are fighting for their rights right now. About a decade ago, I, I went to Nicaragua with a group of students from our school. And this is purely anecdotal. But when we when we got there, well, we looked up online 
the crime rates in, in Nicaragua and they were very low. And so we asked our, our tour guide what he thought was happening. And he said that he thought, and it's just his opinion, but he thought that in a post-revolutionary society, there was a certain kind of solidarity that existed still years after the revolution. And he thought that's why people didn't go around killing each other at the same rates that they did in the other countries. And who knows if that's true or not, but it stuck with me. I'm wondering, what's your sense of how, say, five decades of neoliberal reforms, how that changed the people of Chile, their social relationships, their interactions? This is a crucial question, Lev, because uh, we need to understand that ideologies materialize, they are applied and they have an influence not only in our material conditions, inequality, right? Like you have more than me or I have to work three jobs just to make it meets and you basically don't work at all and then you have all this money. Uh, in addition to that inequality that is just material and this uh, descriptive in the sense, there are also changes in our understanding of the world when we get used to this inequality and actually we justify it. I think uh, neoliberalism in the 70s in general kind of uh, opened um, this idea that society needed to be uh, centered on greed, on, on, on ambition, on this false entrepreneurship in a way, because all these entrepreneurs are basically have money from before or, you know, we're very lucky or whatever. It is not equally distributed. And when you make the center of society and the principle, the organizing principle, one of greed and competition, brutal competition, uh, instead of solidarity and, you know, um, a compassion and empathy, which is supposedly to be a post-revolutionary society. I doubt that Nicaragua is like that now, but just talking in the abstract, if you value as a society equality and you value an equality that is uh, a human, that is not as something imposed by force, but that's something that grows like a plant, basically, that you uh, have a solidarity and you have something in common. And in terms of, you know, crime, um, first of all, one thing I want to say is, you know, crime is not just like street crime. Uh, we have white collar crime and we have, you know, uh, open fraud, you know, and crimes that we cannot even know that are happening, but are happening of how the rich are basically manipulating the system and buying people out to get in their way. Uh, that is also crime and it's happening, it's not going, okay? And that is uh, pervasive in, in not only neoliberal countries, but I would say in every country, uh, even if you have a post-revolutionary government, uh, as the longer a government stays in power, uh, the more oligarchic it will be in the sense that it will be more separated from the base and from its own history and principles. People start being self-serving. This is something that happens. Just, uh, I would say, in terms of human ambition. But in terms of what, what, what inequality causes to the mind in the sense of, and, and to social interactions and, and social fabric, basically it's very pervasive. And, uh, it's not pervasive, it's pervasive and pernicious uh, in the sense that we, uh, we get used to the same as in the feudal times. We get used to people being billionaires and basically going to space uh, on the dime of their workers. <laughs> yeah. And we justify it because it's cool and looks, you know, 
you know, and it's an, we, we, we're in awe and, and we, we validate that because that could be us in a way, uh, in the, in the uh, illusion of the, of the competitive society, that billionaire could be me. And therefore I allow that billionaire to exist. Uh, that uh, erodes the basic, you know, our harmony of, you know, society and collaboration. And if you are in a post-revolutionary society in which everyone has their needs met, their basic needs met, crime in terms of like stealing, yeah, uh, in terms of like taking things by force uh, from people, which is, or making more money or, or, or you know, dealing in, 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 uh, in criminal activity that is antisocial is re highly reduced. I would say that you cannot eliminate it. There's always, you know, um, a small portion of the population that are kind of uh, dissidents in many kinds, and some of them are not, you know, in the positive side of dissidents, but in the negative side, and that's normal, and that's also part of human nature. But uh, in our society that is more equal, a crime should go down, not because uh, there's um, not only a solidarity and kind of something that is constructed, but also because there's no need really from early on to engage in that kind of activity if you are allowed to flourish as a human being and not just really exist right not just really pay rent but actually have all the the possibilities to realize yourself your identity be different and you know and bring things to the table this is a society that is a post-revolutionary society in which crime would almost not exist because there's no need to uh, be against anybody in a way or violating anybody's rights or encroaching on them um, for my own sake that would be very rare but today in this society in the neoliberal society is very individualistic and before the um, popular uprising, I would say that uh, Chile was, you know, a poster child for neoliberals, neoliberalism in the sense that people were very individualistic and were acquiring many, you know, credit cards and uh, very being showy with their material things that they have bought, you know, with their sweat and tears, you know, <laughs> but, but they were demonstrating that they could acquire this idea of, you know, the society of proprietors, that you are all property owners, you all acquire and you all show off your material wealth. However, a material wealth that is based on debt is precarious and a basically just turn into flames in from one day to the next, even though the cycle of contention of, you know, protests from the high, high school students uh, to the water wars inside, you know, the uh, zones of sacrifice of all the polluted areas, feminism, all these different movements were active for more than 10 years uh, preceding this uh, uprising. So it very quickly crystallized into changing the system because it is not about one group. It is not about one demand. It's about the structure. It's about the system is rigged. The rules are done in a way that they don't benefit uh, the majority. There's no institution for the majority to have power over the oligarchy. Uh, we are just authorizing our representatives and being very passive. So I think uh, the Chilean process opens the door not only to a new, to a new citizen in a way that uh, is active and recognizes that it has been atomized and therefore has been, you know, constructing their lives toward a very competitive goal and um, going back to a more kind of mutual aid kind of situation in terms of like we need to go back and and, and re, rewire our, our, our organizations and uh, bring together people to create a social fabric that was destroyed and there was not even remnants of that. It's completely new in a way. So it is a very exciting process in which neoliberalism is slowly being undone, but very rapidly now in a way that is it could happen in, in a year, society could structurally change itself in a way from the bottom up. Which is all the more incredible given the fact that you had all these decades 
of, of pitting people against each other. So it's like, it's amazing that within that, within that environment, you could have this kind of solidarity. And as you said, a decade worth of, of movements being built. So finally, let's talk about the composition of this, of this constitutional convention. Who's in it and who will, um, yeah, what, what do they represent? Who do they represent? Yes, well, first of all, this convention, it was um, the wording, the, the label was contentious. Okay, so uh, the people in the street were asking for a constituent assembly, which basically is open to changing all the rules and, and um, uh, defining its own rules of engagement uh, and being more sovereign in a way against uh, treaties and uh, or commercial treaties. And also um, uh, in terms of like the actual operation of the nation in, in the meantime, uh, in a sense, I'm going to give you an example of sovereignty, that even if you are discussing, you know, the rights of nature and protecting all of the ecosystems, while you're doing that in the nine months or one year that they're going to be sitting writing it, uh, the government of Sebastián Piñera, who has like 3% approval, which is kind of in the, in the wow. uh, you know, margin, he is fast-tracking private contracts and he is off the glaciers and the uh, national parks and, you know, sacred places of the indigenous peoples and this is being fast-tracked as we speak so therefore there is a kind of a, a double movement that the constituent assembly could have you know stopped at least uh, in terms of like anything uh, that has to do with like permanent damage needs to be you know stopped right now because we're in a constituent process so the government decided to call it a constitutional constitutional convention not constituent and constitutional has a more reformist kind of sound to it uh, and it, it it's not appending, it's not original in a way, it is kind of derivative. There has rules of engagement. For example, one is that all the articles of the constitution need to be uh, voted by two third supermajority in this convention, okay? And this is this rule was thought from the government that because uh, in their co- the right-wing coalition always has between a third and you know 40% of the vote. Okay, so they were saying, okay, if we get what we always get, then we can veto any structural change because, you know, the progressive forces would need two thirds in order to change the constitution, the the more fundamental structure that is neoliberal. So we will protect. Okay. However, the political parties were in complete disarray. Um, the right-wingers were always kind of organized, but they uh, were lost legitimacy, the same as the concertacion parties, the parties that were like the center-left, uh, the neoliberal left, if, if that exists. It's not, it's not an oxymoron in itself, uh, but these people basically uh, lost a lot of you know, uh, support. And, and all the pundits were saying, well, you know, the independents, who are the people that are supported by their own territories, just regular citizens, citizens, okay, there were, um, there were like 2000 candidates throughout Chile, they were people just random people, like seeking signatures in order to run because they were wanted to, they wanted to be part of the process, okay. And the pundits were saying, well, you know, the independents are, you know, all scattered, they're going to get like 5%, you know, and they were giving the regular percentage to the political parties, like the classical polls. Uh, the, but however, the, the result was that 40% of the convention became independents and, and from uh, indigenous peoples. Uh, and we have a, a quota for indigenous peoples. And also the convention has gender parity. So the lists were drawn with a one man, one woman in a kind of zebra um, way, uh, in exchanging one, one, one man and woman. So therefore, uh, we the result was that we have a 50% a male, 50% female, which is the first time in history that something like this happens. And then 
the important thing is that the right wingers didn't get the third. So they got less than that, which meant, which means that basically they have to negotiate in order to veto a structural change. So this was a game changer for the popular movements because they saw that this is the way that they, the, the, the change can be made. There was a lot of skepticism before because what, what is the deal with, you know, selecting people to write a new constitution when you have, you know, an entrenchment rule to a two third majority that you need to, and there's almost impossible, it's impossible to get, uh, you will not be you will not allow you be allowed to change really the juridical structure the rules of the game in order to change actually the material structure the reality so people were very um disappointed but when the election happened and these were the results now uh this is like a new ball game okay and and it went more interesting um by the day so uh the convention is there's 155 uh people they are um like 12 percent is indigenous peoples from nine different nations so for the first time in the history of chile we are recognizing that they are nations different from the chilean you know kind of people that is a mixture and we're recognizing them as um, per the international agreements that we have uh, signed. And in a country that has treated indigenous peoples as terrorists when they protest. This is a, it's a really uh, remarkable thing that happened. And not only that, they, the convention elected a president and a vice president. And the president is Mapuche woman, so from the um, largest uh, indigenous uh, community in Chile. And she is from a very, very poor uh, background. Uh, and But she basically studied and became a doctor in linguistics. And she has like two PhDs. And she is, you know, a feminist, is a very progressive person, very loving person in a kind of way of um, not as a kind of dominant president, but more like a kind of a welcoming mother, if you will. Uh, so very different style of like the male leadership in a way. And uh, the vice president is, is, a, is a lawyer who is a kind of human rights activist. And But the most important thing is that she was elected and she uh, speaks in her own tongue for the first time and she basically does a double speech so for the first time chileans are exposed to multilingualism something that had you know existed for years and years and years decades and and all from from the spanish you know conquering chile and it's the first time that we can see it so now plurinationalism, the idea that we are territory in which there are multiple nations that are not only need to be recognized, but they need to be in equality, have, you know, the autonomy to self-determinate, to, to uh, nurture their own cultural backgrounds, to flourish as cultures in a way. And this is something that is new. It has been happening in Bolivia and, and Ecuador, but here for the first time, they're all minorities and um, there is a more, uh, a spirit of solidarity from the mestizo majority, if you will. And they, 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 they recognize that the indigenous peoples have been oppressed throughout. And uh, as you know, Marx famously said, uh, the people that are more, more oppressed are the ones who actually will liberate us in a way. Uh, because if they are liberated, that means that everybody's liberated, everybody's emancipated. If the people that are more oppressed are in a way in a better situation. The flags of indigenous peoples have been uh, present since the beginning of the October 2019 and actually the Mapuche flag has become like a symbol of rebellion uh, and is appropriated by you know the mestizo majority and there's wow. we can say it is a rainbow coalition. I know it's hard to make predictions but what would you predict to be a few material changes that come out of this constitution? 
So I, uh, we have been talking about uh, new social rights, and we need to understand that Chile has no social rights in the sense that rights are uh, only if you can afford them, okay? So um, with, there's people without house, uh, without healthcare, and we can relate here in the US, right? Uh, even if we have education for free, that's it. Uh, and in a way, you need to be poor and deprived in order to have a health insurance uh, subsidized in a way. And you still need to pay, there's co-pays and all these things. That, that is not understanding you know, health as a right as we know it. So in Chile, there's none of these rights. And uh, the only you know, public education, for example, are for the more deprived communities and is very underfunded. So you need to really uh, have a revolutionary change in terms of like how many social rights are you going to include in the constitution, starting starting for, by, by with water. We are the country that only, the only country in the world where water is private. <laughs> and all it says, there's a water market. The, you, a corporation can buy liters per second in perpetuity imagine and they can transfer in this in this in this market so it's, we really need to you know undo the, the the foundations and and make new ones so in that making uh, the declaration of social rights is not enough I think they will come a new institution a, a defender uh, of human right of human rights and material rights of social rights an institution that will force the executives to spend the money because uh, we need to remember that in, in electoral cycles none want to uh, make investments in, that will only yield results in the long run, in a way. You don't want to spend money in housing that you, maybe uh, you are, uh, the opposition party will be you know, cutting the, the, the ribbons, in a way. So there's a short-term perspective in uh, governments that need to be uh, directed toward a long-term uh, materialization of rights. So I think there's going to be a new infrastructure that will allow for that. There will be rights of nature, uh, which will, will put a limit uh, to the extractivism that has been going on. Uh, we need to remember that uh, we have copper, which uh, is used for, for electricity and is, is pivotal in a way for uh, electrical conduction. And we also have now lithium. So lithium is uh, the kind of the power of the future. And now it's being appropriated and extracted without any consideration of, you know, the natural ecosystem. Uh, so uh, this is going to stop. And the indigenous peoples as defenders of nature, I think will push that kind of concept of uh, putting a limit and not having a sustainable economy, sustainable extraction that doesn't exist. It's a euphemism. Uh, you cannot extract sustainably. Things are, are basically uh, going to affect ecosystems forever. So uh, I think those changes are going to they're going to be in the vanguard and may, I will I hope that it will be cop uh, copied by others. However, the one that I, uh, makes me a more um, like happier in the sense uh, of, of their accomplishment is the institutionalization of popular power, of giving common people an institution uh, through which to fight their own rights and to impose things in government and veto laws coming from government that they believe are oppressive or pushing for social change when representatives are not doing it. Uh, we need to acknowledge that uh, our representative system doesn't work very well and has allowed for, for decades for wealth to be uh, systematically and disproportionately uh, appropriated by the 1% uh, oppressing the majority. So therefore, the majority needs, needs institutional mechanisms to control you know, their representatives and also push for the change that is necessary because that change 
is never going to come from the top. Uh, there's a, a network of uh, local assemblies that is connecting right now, and they are trying to push for the structural change in this constituent process as we speak. So that could be incorporated also in the constitution, bringing a new player. You will have, you know, the judicial uh, power, you would have the executive, the legislative, and also the popular power. 